Morning, everybody. It's great to be with you this morning, and a special welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We're glad that you are with us, and yes, thanks, Pastor Brent. I have published this book. It's been a book that's been four years in the making, and I'm, I'm really pretty proud of it. Um, it, it. I was inspired to write it with, from this uh, Rembrandt painting titled Christ in the Storm. There it is. And um, that painting was stolen in the largest art heist, unsolved art heist in, in world history. Uh, in March of 1990, uh, it was stolen, and it, it still hasn't surfaced uh, to this day. So it kind of adds a, a layer of intrigue and depth to my book as I explore topics like faith and fear and obedience. And I hope that you, uh, after service, that you grab a copy, and I'll be glad to sign it for you. Uh, that's sure to increase the value of the book by a whole nickel at least. So anyway, mostly I hope that you really enjoy it. All right, so I feel like I need to get something off my chest because the last time I visited with you back in June, I shared with you my sad old truck story. You remember that? And I feel like I kind of left you with a bit of a cliffhanger of sorts in that I didn't tell you what happened to the truck. So I'm going to share that with you now. And for those of you who missed that message, I shared uh, back in June how uh, over 30 years ago, I was in the Army, and I had, I had this 54 Chevy truck. Is that a sweet truck or what? It was my baby. I love that truck. And, uh, but my time uh, in the Army was coming to a close, but the truck was having some serious engine problems to the point that I could not drive it from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where I was stationed, back home to Anaheim, California, where I'm from. So I had to tow it. So I towed it, <laughs> towed it across country. And when I landed back in, in California, thankfully, I had a close family member who worked at a, a repair shop that specialized in fixing old, old vehicles. And I'm thinking, this is perfect. And the Army, they gave me $3,000 to, uh, to be discharged. So I gave this family member the keys to the truck, $3,000, and he said, I'll have it back to you in a month. It'll be good as new. Six months later, when I saw my baby in the basement of an Anaheim warehouse, it was literally in pieces. And what I did not know at the time was this family member had a cocaine addiction. Yeah. So I'm sitting there. I'm flat broke. I got this truck in a million pieces. I had no idea what to do with it. So I sold it to a neighbor for $1,200. So there you go. It's not the feel-good ending you were hoping for, right? I know, I know. Well, uh... We're glad that you're with us this morning as we continue our series in the book of James. And something that I think is important for you and I to remember, whenever we engage uh, in Scripture, it's important to understand the context in which a passage or a book of the Bible was written. Who was the audience? 
What was the date? What kind of events were taking place at the time of the writing? With the book of James, it was written around 46 AD. And he's writing to Jewish Christians who had been scattered due to the rising persecution from the Roman occupation that had been happening for decades. And the tensions in that region are getting worse and worse. There's more and more growing unrest in the region of Judea that will culminate in 70 AD with the, the destruction of the Jewish temple and ultimately leaving the city of Jerusalem in ruins. So that's kind of the lens through which you and I can read the book of James. James is an extremely practical book. If you want to be challenged in your walk with Jesus, just read the book of James. It's challenging. It's convicting. It's full of verses like this. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Now, I don't know about you, but the thought of me confessing my sins, of which there are many, to others is not my idea of a good time. But it is something that James says we all must do to maintain a healthy spiritual life. Or this verse, as I ponder my repeatedly asking God for a million dollars. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. See what I mean? Practical. I think God knows that if he were to give me a million dollars, it probably would not be a good thing. One pastor has said that James wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. And that is so true. In all seriousness, what is so beautiful about the book of James is its useful application to our everyday lives. And James, as the half-brother of Jesus, he's a guy who's full of wisdom. He borrowed heavily from the book of Proverbs as well as the book of Matthew. So this morning, let's take a look at James chapter 2, where James is writing about how to live in Christian community. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, uh, you, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law 
as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, I'm sorry about this. I, I should have done this a little bit earlier. Some of you, when you came in this morning, you received a blue square, right? If you received a blue square, would you please hold it up? Would you hold it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of you. And, and frankly, the ushers, they handed out these blue squares to, to you because you look like, well, you're attractive and you ha- look like you have your stuff together. So to add to it, what we'd like to do is have you move to the seats down in front just to give you a better, a better viewpoint. And those of you who did not receive a blue square, hey, sorry about that. I mean, you can't win them all, right? <laughs> now, now, how are you guys feeling? Perfect. Thank you, ladies. <laughs> Isn't it so much better? How are you feeling? Are you wondering, is this dude for real? Did, did the church really hand out blue squares based on how people look? I'm just kidding. Now you guys, you can stay there. You're welcome to stay there. I'm just kidding. And I only did that to illustrate. <laughs> really? <laughs> I only did that to illustrate what was taking place in the early church. Division was happening in the church based on how people looked. And the church today has experienced division also. Over the last 18 months with this COVID pandemic, there's been a lot of division about how to go about properly handling the pandemic, right? And then you get into politics, there's a lot of division there for sure. But apparently, what was dividing the church in the day of James was money and the importance of appearances. Now, four years ago, my wife and I, we celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary, and we decided we were going to go to New York City and enjoy just visiting New York, and we had the greatest time. We spent three or four days there, and one of the things that we thought would be super fun would be to sit in the audience of a late-night TV program. I mean, how fun would that be, right? What we did not know but came to realize is that there was a vetting process just to sit in the audience. So we had to fill out this online application where they asked us for our social media links. And most importantly, they asked for a most recent picture. Now, it may come as no surprise to any of you that my wife, we didn't make the cut. We didn't get in. Now, my wife, she could have gotten in all by herself because she's a looker. But they took one look at me and they're like, yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) Apparently, they only allow people of a certain look to sit in the audience of their TV program. And one thing that I learned from that experience is that people are very good at excluding people. I mean, we all know that, right? All of us, at some point or another in our lives, 
can think back to a time that we were excluded. Whether you were the last kid picked on the, on the playground for the playground game, or you were excluded because of your race or the way you looked or your income or the type of car you drive or the neighborhood that you live in and countless other ways, we've all experienced exclusion at some point, haven't we? The title of this message is Whole People Don't Play Favorites. And I don't know about you, but I have my favorites in a lot of different things. I'm a self-proclaimed chocoholic. Anybody else? Yep, yep. I listen to Elvis just about every day, and I firmly believe that October baseball is God's gift to humanity. Can I get an amen? Yes. And like you, I have my favorites in a plethora of different things in life. But what James is sharing with us in this passage is that favoritism is to have no place in the church. Now, why do you think that James would even write about this? Because favoritism was a problem in the early church. And in this particular instance, people were showing favoritism at church toward rich people. And my guess is they were doing that with the hope of getting something from them, getting something in return. And this is where the real spirit behind favoritism rears its head as judgment. And we all know that judging others based on how they look is dangerous territory, isn't it? When you and I play favorites based on how people appear, we become judges. One of my favorite commentators, David Guzik, he says, we do well to remember that James wrote to a very partial age, filled with prejudice and hatred based on class, ethnicity, nationality, and religious background. In the ancient world, people were routinely and permanently categorized because they were Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, Greek or barbarian, and I would add male or female. Does that sound familiar? Does that not sound like the issues our current culture is facing today? What it shows us is that our culture has always dealt with favoritism and division. Just a couple of days ago, I was listening to a podcast, it was really an interesting podcast, about an insider's look at the Academy Awards. It was fascinating. You look at the audience in the Academy Awards and who's sitting in the front couple of rows? Denzel, Meryl, Leonardo, Right, All your A-listers are in the first two or three rows, and behind them are the B-listers and the behind-the-scenes executives and whatnot. And then, you know, 15, 20 rows back, who's sitting there? Nobodies. The seat fillers. The Academy Awards are a perfect illustration of how our culture deals with favoritism. It divides the haves from the have-nots. Now, you and I, we all know that the world is a divisive place, but the church 
should never be a place where division is happening. Now, aside from favoritism, the early church had tons of problems. There were problems about Jewish Christians insisting that people new to the faith had to be circumcised. Ouch. There were issues related to idol worship. There was food-related issues. There was infighting. And what we learned from all of this is that the church has always had problems because it's made up of people. You and I can be problematic, can't we? Because we want things our way, don't we? And that's just the way we are. Even though the God we serve is perfect, the church is not. And we see the imperfections of that going all the way back to the early church. Because then, as it is now, we tend to place value on people by how they look. Now, instead of the word favoritism here, another and perhaps more accurate word to use in this passage is the word partiality. And using this word, it takes on a whole different tone. The dictionary defines partiality as unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another. As I mentioned earlier, I have my favorites, you have your favorites, but partiality, especially in light of this definition, it carries a different weight, doesn't it? Unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another. And it really provides a more accurate picture of what James is talking about. It's unfairly giving preference over one guy, the rich guy in our story, over another person, the poor guy, based on how they looked. Dr. John MacArthur, he commented on this. He said this, we tend to put everyone in some kind of stratified category, higher or lower than other people. It has to do with their looks. It has to do with their wardrobe. It has to do with the kind of car they drive, the kind of house they live in. Sometimes it has to do with their race, sometimes with their social status, sometimes outward characteristics of personality. All of those things with God are non-issues. Now, to be fair, this passage is not about rich people. And it is not about poor people. Instead, it's about how you and I interface with each of those kinds of people in a church environment. So the first point for you to write down in your outline is this. When partiality is present, somebody always loses. Whenever partiality rears its head, all it takes is a quick look around to see bitterness slowly creeping in the shadows. Going back to this blue square that I shared at the beginning of the service, for a brief second, some of you were thinking, is he serious? Is the church really passing out these things to people who are good looking? Partiality in the Greek means receiving the face. It means to make judgments based on someone's outward appearance. And here's the thing, everybody does it, right? 
But as we read the scriptures, we learn that God is not such a big fan of this. He isn't all that concerned about how a person appears on the outside as much as he's concerned about what's on the inside, about what is in a person's heart. We see an example of this in the book of 1 Samuel, where God, having rejected Saul as the first king of Israel, he's now on the lookout for the next king. Enter this dad named Jesse, who has eight sons. And seven of these sons go before the prophet Samuel with the hope of being anointed the next king. I mean, this is a big deal, right? They presented and considered the first son, the oldest son, first. And this dude, he must have been a hunk. Mr. Tall, Dark, and Handsome. Because God said this to Samuel. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. An entire industry today is built around, valued at billions of dollars. It's built around how you and I present ourselves to each other. Just this morning, I was on Instagram. (laughs) If Instagram does anything, it shows me just how much fun I'm not having. It reminds me how unattractive I am because everybody on Instagram, they put their best self forward. And if Instagram were around 3,000 years ago, this father, Jesse, he would have posted tons of pictures of his oldest son. Oh, sure, he might have sprinkled a couple of his youngest, his 14-year-old shepherd boy named David, but mostly it would have been about his older son. Pertaining to this passage, author and pastor Max Lucado, he says this, God saw what no one else saw, a God-seeking heart. David took after God's heart because he stayed after God's heart. In the end, that is all God wants or needs. Others measure your waist size or wallet, not God. He examines hearts. And when he finds one set on him, he calls it and he claims it. The Lord is more concerned about your heart and about my heart. Fast forward into the New Testament where we see Jesus. He was a guy who was all about the heart also. In the Gospel of Luke, he's pronouncing the seven woes on the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. These guys, they love to look good on the outside, but Jesus said to them, woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Yet another example, as Jesus was teaching a crowd of people, Again, Jesus is picking on the Pharisees, and he says this, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. I think you're getting the point. 
more than how a person presents themselves on the outside. God is looking at the heart. And that's really the main issue in this passage of James, isn't it? But unfortunately, the heart issues of people led to lines being drawn in the early church. But again, the church is the last place where we should make distinctions among fellow believers because you and I are on the same playing field. That's why the Apostle Paul, he wrote to the Galatians and he said this, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So another takeaway from this, and the next item for you to write down in your outline is the church is a place where all should be seen. One of the things that we really strive for here at Timberline is to make sure that people are seen. We don't want to overlook anybody. We don't care who you are, what your position in life is, how much or how little money you have, how good-looking or ugly you might be. We strive to be a church that sees you. Why? Because God sees you. Our earnest desire is to follow the example of Jesus. When he walked this earth, he was constantly seeing those who were used to being excluded and overlooked. Perhaps that's you today. I want you to know that God sees your heart. He sees the challenges that you face every single day. How do we know that? All we got to do is look at the scriptures where we see examples of Jesus interacting with the overlooked, with people who were like lepers, widows, women, children. There are numerous examples in the scriptures where Jesus uses these excluded and overlooked people to teach profound spiritual truth. Next week, Mackenzie's going to be sharing up here, and she's going to expand on this idea of not overlooking others. So a question for us to ponder this morning is this. Who do you not see? Who do you overlook? Sheesh. It's a heavy question, isn't it? But if you and I are able to answer that question and act on it, we're moving a little closer to the heart of God. And I, I think that's what's so good about these uh, kindness cards that we passed out last week. We've heard so many great stories from you folks who have shared how you've, how you've given these cards to bank tellers or servers at your favorite restaurant and just how moved people were by that. And I think these serve as great reminders to be on the lookout for those we tend to overlook. A few years ago, my family and I, we lived in Portland, Oregon. And Portland has a huge homeless population. And up until that point, I was constantly overlooking the homeless. 
But I had a sense that God was wanting to change my view regarding homeless people. So I began to volunteer at the Portland Rescue Mission. And wow, talk about an eye-opening experience. My tenure there helped me to become a better person and a better pastor. I volunteered there for three years, and I learned a lot from the people who were homeless. And it helped me to see beyond how they presented themselves on the outside in reminding me that every person has a story and every person is valued by God. This brings me to my third point for you to write down. Love God and love others regardless of how they look. James shows us what loving God and loving others looks like as he reiterates what his brother says in the book of Matthew. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Loving our neighbor as ourself. When you and I do that, we are imaging God. When we image God, we're imitating God. So in order to properly imitate God, Jesus says we need to love God and love others. Dr. Michael Heiser, he says this, injustice and abuse of power would find no place if we valued the fact that we all image God equally. All our relationships, personal, home, business, work, church, would be different. If we consciously remembered our equal status as imagers of God. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for our gathering together today. Thank you, God, so much for the book of James and how it's such a powerful book in its, uh, its conviction to live a godly life. God, we pray over this idea of not overlooking or excluding others based on how they appear. God, may we always keep that close to our chest as we engage with people. I pray for those who are here this morning who perhaps have been overlooked and excluded and that this morning would be an encouragement to them, a reminder to them that you love them deeply and that you see them. God, we thank you so much for our time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.